Hi, everyone, and welcome to How to College, our podcast where we get together with fellow first-generation college students to have real conversations on what it's like to be the first one in your family to embark on this journey. On today's episode, we will do something a little bit different. Today, we're going to have a conversation with two undocumented students, one that did qualify for DACA and one that didn't. Now, for those of you that might not know, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It essentially is an executive order that President Obama passed back in 2012, which allowed youth that qualified for it to essentially have a social security number and to be able to travel within the U.S. and work here legally. I was one of those people that benefited from DACA and it changed my life. First, we'll have a conversation with Arturo, who unfortunately did not meet the criteria. He'll tell us what it was like to sort of stand there while everybody's dreams were able to be fulfilled, and yet he did not qualify because he missed it by a couple of years. And then we'll get into a conversation with Denise, who did qualify for DACA and what that has meant for her life. So let's get started. Hi, Arturo. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. So we're super excited to have you on the show today. Why don't you begin by telling our audience a little bit about you? My name is Arturo, and I was born and raised in Mexico City. Then around when I was 10 to 13 years old, I moved here to the United States, and I came here with my grandpa, but he only stayed a couple of months just to like get me settled in with my uncle and aunt, and ever since then, I've been living with them. And when it comes to my immigration status, it was around my freshman year of high school when I first had a glance of the financial aid process and I learned that to apply for financial aid through FAFSA, I had to give a social security number. And by asking around, I realized that this nine digit number is only granted to citizens and permanent residents. And I was neither. So that moment I realized, okay, my immigration status is going to have some effects on my life. Let's go back a little bit towards the beginning of your story. So tell me a little bit about growing up in Mexico City with your mom. What was that like? For the most part, my mom was always working. She just tried to provide for me as well as much as she could. And for the most part, I was raised by my grandparents. Now I live here, like I've made most of my life here and I haven't been able to go back to just visit. It's interesting that at this point, as far as I'm concerned, like if someone asks, were you born here? I could pretty much say Yes, because I feel like most of my life I've made it here. So do you remember that time when you and your mother had a conversation about you coming here? Number one, why was that decision made? Number two, were you asked? Um, tell me a little bit about that conversation, or perhaps there was no conversation. When the opportunity came to come to the United States, actually my mom and I didn't really have a conversation because for the most part, the ones who made the decision was actually my grandpa. Because my grandpa has a sister, my aunt, who lives here or had been living here for around seven years by the time that, you know, they offered me the opportunity. And also my aunt is kind of like a second mom to me. When I was offered the opportunity to move here, she called me and she asked me, like, do you want to come here? And of course I said yes, because, you know, through movies, the media, all of this stuff, you know, America's the land of opportunity and you will definitely get a lot of better things than where I was. So at that point, it was no brainer. I was like, yes, I want to go there. And my grandpa also kind of wanted to come over here. So that conversation was essentially like, okay, <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> this for the best. So let's do it. And my mom really didn't have any objections. She's like, no, you have to go. That's it's for your own good. But that also implied that you and your mom would now be separated. 
What was that like? I mean, as someone who has also been separated from her mom, I know the complexity behind that. So tell our audience a little bit of how your mother came to that decision. And was it supposed to be a short-term trip or was the intent that it would be for the rest of your life? For the most part, one of the main reasons why I lived with my grandparents was because my mom was always working. So at that point, I was not always close to her. I think eventually when it came down to, to uh, you're moving to the United States, at that point, you know, I had I wasn't really spending much time with my mom. So when it came to me at that point, I just didn't have that close relationship with my mom to just feel worried or concerned that I was leaving. And also at that point, it's just those are the kind of opportunities that only come once in a lifetime. We just had to make the decision not to let this opportunity go away. In my mind, the plan was like, okay, just go get a college education and come back and help your brothers. But now it's just pretty much my whole life here. So I'm not sure if at that point, if I really do want to go back. But to answer your question, I think it was for the most part, yeah, a long-term decision that you're going to stay here. Obviously, you grew up undocumented, went to school. In 2012, President Obama passed his defer action for childhood arrivals, which essentially allowed a lot of the dreamers to be able to work here legally, to be able to travel here legally. And I was one of those beneficiaries. But it turned out that you did not qualify for it. So tell me a little bit about that. So in 2012, President Obama announced his plans for DACA. And I remember this day clearly, uh, June 15, 2012. And the reason why I remember this day clearly, it's because it's actually the main reason why I was not able to apply for DACA. Within the DACA program, there is a requirement that says that you must have lived continuously in the United States since June 15, 2007 to June 15, 2012, making it a five-year interval. Unfortunately, I arrived to this country on November 8, 2009, thus making me ineligible to apply for DACA. And at that, at that point, I kind of lost a bit of hope, but what can we do? So let's pause there for a second. So here you are. How old were you in 2012? I was 16. So here you are at 16. You're probably sitting in high school, working extremely hard. And I can only imagine the despair that you felt because you met every single one of those requirements with the exception of your arrival date. And you missed it essentially by two years. So tell me, what goes through your brain? Do you say... Why am I trying so hard at school? Do you say, forget this, maybe I don't want to go to college? What's going through your mind there? Well, I think the first thing that went through my mind was, this is just going to make it more difficult. I already knew because around my sophomore year, I had learned about the financial aid application process and specifically that to you know apply for FAFSA, you need to provide a social security number. And by doing some research, asking around, essentially I learned that you know that's only granted to citizens and permanent residents. And I was neither. So at that point, I'm like, okay, I do not have what's necessary to apply for financial aid, but that's okay. At this point, I got to keep on trying, doing the best that I can, keep on getting the grades to make sure that, you know, when the time comes my senior year and I have to apply to college and find other financial resources, hopefully I will have the necessary things that I need to be able to perhaps close this gap that's being created by the lack of a nine-digit number. Unfortunately, that was not the case because when I got to my senior year, you know, you start learning more about these things. You try to apply to scholarships and start looking at the requirements and every time it must be a U.S. citizen or permanent resident. And we're talking about the years 2014. Things have gotten a lot better since then, 
there are more opportunities for scholarships and all of that. But in 2014, that was not the case. The resources are very limited and I find myself in basically limbo. I am a 4.0 GPA student, AP scholar, about to become the valedictorian of my class. And, you know, all the stars are pointing to the next thing, which is college. And it shouldn't be so difficult given my resume at the time. But my immigration status is literally the only thing holding me back from making the next move. So why did you try so hard? Why did you get that 4.0? Why get valedictorian? What gave you hope that things would work out? And the reason why I asked this, Arturo, is because in my time working in education and in immigration rights, I've seen a lot of students in your situation that basically say, it's not worth it. I'm not going to work as hard because there is no light at the end of this tunnel. There is literally nothing waiting for me on the other side. So what kept you going? Well, I think the most important thing for me at the time was just to let go of the frustration of not having a social security number. At the end of the day, I always thought that was going to be temporary. Somehow my immigration status will be solved. Well, I will have to find another solution. But at that very moment, education has always mattered to me. I love learning. I love going to school. So I think at that point, I was I just told myself, like, I can complain all I want, or I can use this time uh, to refine my knowledge and skills, especially because I've always had this image in my head where maybe one day I will be facing an immigration officer who will ask me a simple question, which is, why should we let you live in this country, in the United States? I want my response to be, why not? I don't want to give anyone an excuse to tell me that I cannot live here. And I think at the time, since I was only doing school, like academics at that point it's just like just get good grades uh, they tell you everything will work out and whatnot at the time i was limited by a nine digit number i just didn't want to be limited by other things like my grades or by just giving up i don't think at that point it was the time to give up i think that was the time to just keep on trying and push harder that way you know when the time comes and hopefully my situation fits itself or something else happens i can let the world know that i'm ready for whatever is next so two things that you mentioned really resonate with me the first one is that just from knowing you, I know that you have a thirst for knowledge and you have a thirst for knowing things. So what you are saying makes sense. On the other hand, what you are describing is what many of us grew up believing. And that was that if we worked hard enough, if we showed somehow our quote unquote worthiness via our grades, then somehow this country would one day recognize us as one of their own, which is somewhat true, I would argue. And it's not true in many other ways, as we see from your situation. And so it's really interesting to me that this narrative continues to live, that we must be exemplary immigrants. There is no room or space for someone who is an immigrant and doesn't quite hit all those marks, the 4.0, the valedictorian. And I wonder if it's because we ourselves have created that narrative or if it's because the world really has no mercy for immigrants that are quote unquote average. Yeah, it is true. I did realize somewhere along the line that I was letting all of these things define who I am, like am I worthy of having this opportunity to just stay here or not. And that's why I kept 
pushing and pushing. I'm not just going to give anyone an excuse to tell me no. You haven't utilized our resources to its best capability. At that point, I was just like, okay, I just got to do the best that I can with what I have. At the end of the day, the opportunities that I have had in this country, regardless of how limited they have been by the lack of social security number, cannot compare to the things that or the opportunities that I would have if I had stayed in my country, which is Mexico. It is honestly a hard thing to say that due to the lack of resources from the countries that we originate from or other things we know, uh, people are escaping, all of that stuff. It is sad to know that like essentially we're escaping our countries to go somewhere else. But at this point, it's just whatever I have here is better than what I had where I was. And I think that that's what a lot of people don't understand about anybody who literally leaves everything and sacrifices their lives to get here it's not by choice it's because the alternative a lot of the times is not livable so that to me is a, is a very interesting point but let's continue on with your story so then you become valedictorian you are filling out financial aid you don't have any money and yet you have this 4.0 so what do you do next unfortunately as august came like it started getting closer and closer and closer. I keep on thinking, okay, I don't have any money to pay for college. I'm still trying to figure out the financial aid process. Am I even going to go to college? That's the question. And again, this is why I told myself, okay, at this point, just focus on what you have right now. Just keep your grades up. Something will happen. I am thankful enough to say that thanks to all the work that I did, I managed to attract the attention of a lot of people who eventually became my benefactors and were able to pay for my college education for the first two years while I was figuring out all of this whole process. So all the work that I ended up doing was worth it, right? Because I got the attention of these people who were like, okay, finances should not be the only reason why you're not going to college. So we're just going to close that gap and try to help you the best way we can. Life finds a way and I was able to find my way into college and just take it one step at a time. Okay, freshman year, here we go. Sophomore year, here we go. And finally, my junior year, I was able to figure out the financial aid process and secure enough money for my tuition and fees and grow my board. So perhaps to just fill in the gaps for our audience here, I think it's important to recognize and acknowledge that for high school, you went to a charter school that has a 100% college acceptance and college going culture. And so one of the positive aspects of a culture like this is that they will do whatever it takes to get you there. And so when you say you found individuals who paid for this, that's who you're referring to, right? So people within the charter school network who essentially paid for the tuition and fees. Yes. And then your junior year, were you able to qualify for the in-state tuition? How did that work out? It goes back to the fact that being an undocumented student just comes with extra burdens, right? Not only am I just an undocumented student, I'm also a first-generation student, right? So I face a lot more challenges, like, for example, being a first-generation college student. You may not have the knowledge or the people with the knowledge to help you navigate the financial aid process, just filling out those applications and stuff like that. Then that's why ended up happening to me the first two years. I could not, for my life, just figure out how to fill out the financial aid application for for Texas called TASFA. I just didn't know what was I doing wrong. I went to financial office many times and they told me fix this, fix that. And I did. And, you know, somehow like I never got the money. But finally, by my junior year, I had an advisor who basically told me, oh, I think you just made a mistake here in this. So just check this and here you go. 
turn it in, well, we're, you're good to go. I literally just fixed one single box in my application, and I thought that was that was not even an issue. And ta-da, I was secure. I had money for my junior year of college. But it was having that person who had years of experience filling out these kinds of applications that made the difference. To me, that story is crazy because, as you know, I've spent part of my life doing financial literacy, and it blows my mind that so many students continue to miss out on financial aid because of a lack of knowledge and because they don't have the right people to ask the questions. And so to me, I think this is one of the saddest stories I've ever heard. And I knew this just from knowing you. And I think that is why it's so important to do the financial literacy piece in high school and in post high school. So then let's fast forward here a bit. So then you go on through your junior year, your senior year, you happen to be doing really well academically, and then it's time for graduation. And so you're going to graduate with a pure mathematics degree, and yet you are not able to utilize this degree. So tell us a little bit about that. Right, yeah doing really well in school, getting good grades, working with professors that recognize that, you know, probably I can do a lot more things like perhaps pursue a higher degree, a master's, a PhD. Uh, People are recognizing that, you know, I have talent. All of a sudden I start getting job offers and all of that. But just like in high school, I'm like, okay, here we go again. This nine digit number is literally holding me back. But the difference is that, you know, high school, I still had time, you know, I was going to college. But over here, it's just like, okay, what do I do? Here I am with all of these opportunities and I cannot get any single one. So again, I go back to limbo. What do I do? And I think at that point, I just went back to my original plan, which was basically, okay, I knew since high school that I kind of wanted to do a PhD in math. At the time, I didn't, I didn't know what I actually meant to get a PhD in math. But the one thing I did know was that it was going to take a lot of time. So when I was about to graduate with my bachelor in pure math, I told myself like, okay, maybe you can keep on going to school. But also it just became like an eye-opening moment for me. The fact that knowing like, okay, my upper level classes in math, I'm not liking them. It's getting really difficult. Do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? And given my immigration status, I'm like, well, you kind of have no other option. You got to keep on going to school and try to like wait things until like see maybe, you know, things will fix itself or something will happen. So I think that's what I ended up doing just to like cope with the problems at the moment. Go get a master's, figure out if you want to do math for the rest of your life. Also buy yourself some time to figure out how you're going to pay for a PhD program. And also based on the time I graduated summer of 2018 from college, that's two years into the Trump administration. So I also told myself, okay, let's wait out and figure out if this administration is going to mess with all of my plans or not. So are you in a master's program now or where are you in those plans? Lucky enough to say that I will be graduating with a master's in applied mathematics this upcoming December. But that's about it. I think it's finally coming to a point where I'm like, I don't know what's next. And just to ensure that our audience knows, most PhDs are paid for. Most reputable schools who take you on will pay for your PhD and will pay you to do research. So at least on that front, if you can get in, obviously, which it requires that you have a little bit of research in your background from that aspect of it at least you do have that option but it sounds like you might not know if you actually want to go get a phd did the masters help with getting to a decision there yes it has made it very clear to me that if i continue on i have to probably put double the work and truth be told i think after so many years of being in 
and it's cool. I'm getting a little tired, but at this point, I, I feel like you know I have no choice. It, it seems to be like the next thing. Just keep going to school until something happens or until like this situation can be fixed. That way, maybe perhaps I can go into the employment force or something. But right now, maybe it's time to take a break and really figure out what's next. But all I know is that at this point, like, I do not unfortunately have that luxury of quitting school and just go use my degree. I will have a master's in math and yet I don't think I can use it. And what you're mentioning is extremely real for a lot of folks in academia. They will quote over and over how exhausted they are from essentially trying to solve one problem, one equation, and it is exhausting. <laughs> Have you ever thought about potentially leaving the country and going to Spain, to Europe, to Mexico, Argentina, anywhere else where you could theoretically become a statistician or work for a company? Before, that was not an option. That was one of the things that I was not willing to consider. I'm sure a lot of people can relate with me on this. I don't want to leave. Plain and simple, this is home. This is where I want to be. But recently, given everything that I'm facing and all this stuff, it has finally crossed my mind that maybe perhaps I can leave to another country. But that means leaving behind a lot of things, which one of the most important things for me is my family. The people that I grew up with here, in here, also my friends, it just, it's just yet again another journey that I will have to do into another country just for employment. It has finally crossed my mind, but it's not a decision that I am yet considering just because no, I'm not necessarily willing to use that option yet. Uh, I keep on hoping that, you know, something will happen. Right. And not to mention that the moment you step out of the country, the 10-year bar kicks in. So that for those folks that don't know, that is a 10-year ban from the United States of America because you essentially were here illegally. So I understand that it's not just a matter of getting up and leaving. It has some legal repercussions as well. For those people also that don't know, you live in a border town, right? And so that means that you can't go north because there's a checkpoint and you can't go south. And so I'm wondering if you could comment on what it's been like to essentially live in this perimeter of and not being able to cross either too far north or too far south. Uh, as you mentioned, yeah, I do live in, in a border town and it kind of looks like I'm in a cage. I cannot go south, right, because that's the border with Mexico and I cannot go north because that's the checkpoint. Theoretically, say that I managed to cross yet I get another border. I've always seen it as a one-way ticket. It's like I go, but I don't think I come back. But for the purposes of my education, I always thought, okay, theoretically, if I could cross that border, that checkpoint, and go somewhere else and study and all of that stuff, it's like I have to stick to that decision and make the best of it. Because to get there, probably it's going to take people who are helping me and all that stuff, and I just don't want to let them down. Just by saying like, you know what, I actually didn't like this. I'm going to go back home. It's not that simple. Yeah, it becomes extremely risky. And I think to me, one of the biggest shocks when I moved to the Rio Grande Valley was that checkpoint. And a, and a lot of my friends from South Africa and from all over the world cannot begin to fathom that in the United States of America, even inside, we have checkpoints. So it's not just a matter of crossing one border. It's a matter of even being able to move within the United States of America. But I also would say that you shouldn't be so hard on yourself because there are already so many things going not in your favor that I think that if somebody or, or if people were to support your your move to a, an institution to try a PhD, it, it wouldn't be the end of the world if you didn't like it. You tried it. And I think you should give yourself that grace of saying, you can say, you know what, I, I don't, but, but at least you tried it, you know? Yeah, I think perhaps I, I've always thought about it. And this is maybe something that other people can relate. 
maybe one of the many things that as undocumented individuals we shouldn't do is just think about all this stuff and basically ourselves become our worst enemies judge ourselves by higher standards and all of this but it's just that my whole life i basically have been uh, granted all of these opportunities that i know other other undocumented people unfortunately they don't have so i just don't want to let people down not after they've invested so much i'm not sure if that makes sense but i guess again it goes back to maybe perhaps the psychological impact that my own immigration status has on me yeah i think this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning right that for better or worse because it has been engraved in our brains that somehow we have to be better, we have to show this country what we're worth. We do not allow ourselves the opportunity to try new things and to fail. Because in our brains, and, and this is true for me, Arturo, in many ways, in our brains, there is very little room for failure in our stories. But I think my view has evolved over the years. And obviously, my immigration story is very different and my status is different. But at some point, I think I... I stopped saying, oh, I need to be this exemplary immigrant. Oh, I need to show my worthiness. Oh, there's no room for failure because I have failed. It wasn't the end of the world. And I think that the people that invested in me, as you put it, I think at the end of the day, people just want your happiness, you know, and it's not that they need us to be shining all the time. I think they obviously need us to be a beacon of hope, but it's okay to also fail. I do want to go back to two last questions. The first thing is, do you have one or two tips for other undocumented students that don't have DACA? And then the second thing is, perhaps if you could leave us with what gives you hope for the future? The first tip, just network. Network as much as you can. Become friends with everyone. Our immigration status is holding us back. The government is basically telling us, like, no, you don't deserve this, all of this, right? The antidote <laughs> to solve a lot of the problems that I have had is basically just talking to people, networking, and making sure that, you know, people know who I am and they know what I do. It doesn't matter how much you work. Sometimes, unfortunately, it doesn't come down to, like, what have you done? It's rather, like, who do you know? And just networking, it's part of the solution that I, I believe is just solves a lot of these things, right? Like, if people know you better, they will want to help, but it, will, it won't happen if you don't just get to know people. The second tip that I will give actually relates to the first one, just taking every opportunity. As you mentioned, I went to a charter school, and in this charter school, they, they took notice and then they helped me pay for my college education. But actually, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't done literally everything else that I think I did for me, which was basically go and volunteer at events, just help set up, talk to students about why it's important to go to college. Every time that they asked me to volunteer or to support them, I went. And then eventually, thanks to the fact that I did not reject it in one of their single calls, then they started knowing who I was. And then eventually they were able to help me. So when it comes to maybe in academia, when your professor, and actually this happened to me, right? When your professors tell you, oh, would you like to do research with me? Maybe you might not like it or just give it a try. You never know, right? Just take the opportunity and who knows? Maybe it will work, it won't, right? But you already have so many doors shut down. Don't shut more doors for you by not taking little opportunities to let people know who you are. At this point, I just keep seeing things getting better. So for those of you, out there who are listening, non-DACA people especially, just don't give up. Keep working hard, keep networking, keep on taking all of the opportunities. I am a perfect example that if you just keep on working, eventually things will work out in your favor and you will find a way. Life will find a way to give you the opportunities that have been taken away from you. 
you just have to keep on going and do not lose hope. That's a very good point, Arturo. And the way that I view a lot of students like yourself who just missed DACA by a couple years, a couple days, to me, this continues to be a case of dreams that are deferred over and over again. So as a country, I think we need to bring our level of consciousness to not just include folks that maybe missed it by a couple of years, but also to change the narrative on who deserves to be and what it means to be worthy of being here, right? Because I always point to people like my mom, for example, right? She she never had a 4.0. She didn't even go to school. And yet my mother is just as worthy of being in this country legally as those of us that did get the 4.0s that did have the valedictorians after our names. So hopefully we also, as an immigrant movement, we also change that narrative, right? So with that, Arturo, we thank you so much for being on our show and we really appreciate it and we hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks for having me. Now we will transition to have a conversation with Denise, who has been a recipient of DACA. She will tell us how DACA has transformed her life. Hi, Denise. I'm so excited to have you on our show today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Of course. Please tell our audience a little bit about you. Hello, everyone. My name is Denise Panaligan. I am so thrilled to be part of this podcast. So I am currently a DACA beneficiary. I am a graduate of UCLA, and I'm currently a doctoral student at the University of Southern California. So I just switched schools after I graduated from undergrad. I am also a teacher. I teach middle school students, uh, specifically uh, students with disabilities. And this is going to be my fifth year of teaching. I love teaching. I love working with the youth of tomorrow. And in my spare time, I am very much involved in the community. I know that my trajectory is not the norm, right? I am one of the students who was really lucky to find a community support early on. And I would not be here without the people that have supported me thus far. So that is incredible. I have no idea how you find time to sleep given everything you just listed. So I did not know you are a PhD candidate. What is it that you're studying? So there's a difference, actually. I am not a PhD student. I am an EDD student, and that just means Doctor of Education. I'm studying all facets of education right now, but I'm hoping to, with this program, delve deeper into restorative justice systems and also social-emotional learning curriculum to better serve the students I work with now. That is phenomenal. And thank you so much for the correction. I sort of just assumed when you said academia that you were doing a PhD So let me take a step back and I would just love our audience to hear more about your immigration story. So where were you born and when did you come to the U.S.? I was born in the Philippines. I grew up in the Philippines. And when I was nine years old, my family made the brave decision to come to the United States. When we immigrated to the United States, we settled in Lancaster, California, And this was partly because of my dad's employment. And after a few years, we decided to move to Los Angeles because of the networks that we created in LA. And when did you realize that you were undocumented? 
in the Filipino community, there's this term called tago ng tago, which means constantly in hiding. My parents, even though they knew about our undocumented status as a family, they didn't really explain to me what that meant until my senior year of high school. I actually found out that I was undocumented when I was filling out the FAFSA with the other seniors in my class. And then I remember our counselor pulled me aside and she knew about my undocumented status. And so she told me that I actually couldn't apply for the FAFSA because I didn't have a social security number. I came home thinking that this was a mistake. I asked my parents for my social security number. And that's when they sat down with me and told me about us being undocumented in the United States. So that was really the first time I heard about being undocumented. It wasn't really until I turned 18 and I saw my friends applying to colleges. And I also saw my friends driving, right, and getting that driver's license that I fully understood the experience. And it's incredible that for so many of us, it was the moment that we had to fill out some type of paperwork that all of a sudden we were faced with this crazy notion that we were somehow different than the rest of our friends. And so Arturo, who is the other speaker on this show, on this episode specifically, he also talks about how he had to do this FAFSA and then realizing there was no FAFSA for him because he didn't have this nine-digit number. So then tell me, how did that affect where you applied to college? As a child, you know, I wanted so much to escape this immigrant identity. I never wanted to be known as, you know, Denise, the undocumented immigrant, right? And as I grew up and I learned, I realized that my lack of status had really defined the way I experienced America. I remember I applied to a couple of UCs and a couple of other private colleges as well. With the private colleges, they started asking me for information, assuming that I was an international student. And so when the financial forms came in and I saw how much tuition was with international student fees, I was very much discouraged. My family is not the most affluent family out there. And I knew that without access to financial aid, college would be much more inaccessible to me. My status was very much inextricably linked with my identity. It's affected every single way I interacted with this country, specifically applying for colleges. I didn't even tell my close friends that I was undocumented. When I approached colleges, I would look up policies around AB 540. So AB 540 is a legislation specific to California that allowed undocumented students, but also students who have residency in California for three years, but maybe moved away, right, and came back to get in-state tuition. So I would do all of the research around the policies themselves. And that's how I would interact with the institutions. I felt like I always had to explain myself. When I would go to the registrar office, I also felt that I had to be the holder of knowledge and I was informing my counselors and the people that are in charge of financial aid about my situation and what the current policies were. So it felt very strange being the expert (laughs) of my own situation, but not having the resources to access the things that I needed to get to college. What you are saying extremely resonates with me and I'm sure with a lot of our listeners who somehow 
from a very young age, all of us became lawyers without actually having a degree. All of us became doctors without actually being doctors, just because of the nature of having to translate for our families. All of us became tax experts. All of us became blank expert, right? Like you name it, because we really had no other choice. It was our future. We had to have the knowledge, the key to the information. So then where did you end up after you basically walked your counselors and all the administrators on the policies? I ended up choosing UCLA. I chose UCLA actually because I attended the Immigrant Youth Empowerment Conference that they host every year. So this powerful student organization named Ideas at UCLA, it's all student-led, all volunteer-led, and they put on this conference that brings over a thousand people per year. They reached out to my school and I came to their conference at UCLA. And this conference really opened my eyes to how the support that I needed really depended on me sharing my story, right? And depended on me coming out. Prior to this conference, I didn't really know anybody else that was undocumented. I didn't know anybody else that was Asian American and undocumented. And so coming to this conference, I got to meet people who shared similar immigration status with me, right? Immigration experiences, but also who shared my ethnic background. I think that there's a lot to unpack when it comes to being undocumented and Asian American. But I did end up choosing UCLA because they had that student organization that advocated UCLA to provide those services. But also we had an amazing coordinator. At the time it was Angela Chen. So she was leading the AB 540 project housed in the Bruin Resource Center at UCLA. And after talking to her, I just felt so much more comfortable going to UCLA. And again, you know, I really am grateful for the connections that I made because UCLA was closer to my home. UCLA was also within the state of California and I was able to apply for AB 540 because I was a resident of the state, even though I was not a citizen, considered a citizen. I also chose UCLA because they had the programs that I wanted. I knew that I wanted to learn more about the labor movement. I also wanted to learn more about Asian American history and Asian American organizing. And UCLA had all of these programs in addition to the supports that I would need to navigate through college as an undocumented student. That is incredible, Denise, because if I were to tell you that I went to Rice University as an undergrad, where I was the only undocumented person at that time, or the only one at least that was speaking about these issues and advocating for having tuition for undocumented students. To me, this story that you're telling me of the number, the quantity of all these individuals in the support system, I mean, it blows my mind, right? Because I come from spaces where it was all hush-hush. You never told anybody. You were scared for your life. You were scared for your family's life. I cannot imagine how empowering that must have felt at 18 or 19, knowing that not only I belong here, but I belong here and I have a support system of other people that look like me and that share this experience with me. 
I am also reflecting upon your experiences. And I know that being the only one in your campus to be undocumented, or maybe not even to be undocumented, but to be out and sharing your immigration status at the time, even before DACA, which is when I went to college, that's really scary. And so at the time of my life, I knew that we didn't have DACA yet. So we were not safe from deportations yet. And I would argue that we're not safe from deportations even now. But it was very helpful for me to meet the people that I knew I wanted to organize with, right? And the people that understood and I didn't have to explain to them what I was going through. For sure. So you mentioned DACA here for a second. So let's dig in there. So the summer of 2012, President Barack Obama comes out into the lawn of the White House and he announces that he will sign this executive order for DACA. All of us who are involved in the movement or affected by the movement, we all remember exactly where we were, what we were doing, and the thoughts that went through our head. So tell our audience, where were you? What were you thinking? What were you feeling at that point? June 15, 2012 was the day of our senior graduation. Many of my student organization predecessors were graduating at the time. And I was actually at an ideas at UCLA graduation ceremony. And after we conducted the ceremony, and for context, everybody who was part of the ceremony were undocumented students, right? So we had this ceremony. Family and friends and community members were there. It was a beautiful and joyous moment. And the press came (laughs) to this event because President Obama just announced DACA. It was a very exciting moment because I saw the alignment between the personal victories that my fellow, again, my predecessors had, right? They just graduated from a wonderful, prestigious university. And on the political scene, we had a victory. DACA was not the product of the administration feeling empathy for dreamers and for undocumented folks. It was the result of community organizing. And that community organizing pressured the current administration, which happened to be President Obama, to issue DACA. And so I was, I think, at a very key place because I was at a graduation ceremony and there was a lot of opportunities and possibilities hanging in the air that day. That is incredible. So now that meant that you actually could navigate your whole college career with DACA. So tell us what that was like. When did you apply? When did you get it? Did this completely change your college experience? Yes, DACA fundamentally changed how I envisioned my place in the United States. DACA liberated me to apply to college and not just college as in getting into UCLA, but to apply to other scholarships and opportunities that I did not have access to before. I am so fortunate to have been able to attend UCLA. I am now a doctoral student and I would not be in the same place if DACA was not instated. I know that after six months, so DACA came out in June 15, 2012, 
And USCIS came up with a protocol and they started accepting applications in August of 2012. After they accepted the applications, I waited a little bit. I also was very nervous about the implications of DACA. The whole process itself, right, everybody was just going through it the first time. And there were a lot of fear that this process was actually there to collect information from us, right, to identify us and to come to our homes in the middle of the night and separate us from our families. So I did wait three months. And during that time, I was participating in DACA workshops. I would help people file their own DACA, knowing that I myself needed to apply to DACA. And after three months, you know, I I looked around and I saw the power in numbers. I thought to myself, if everybody applies for DACA, they can't take away all of us. (laughs) And so I ended up applying myself. And I continued to be part of assistance programs with Advancing Justice. Advancing Justice is the organization that I filed my DACA with for the first time. And even after the experience of getting my own DACA, I was so empowered to fulfill my responsibility to prepare my fellow immigrants for this responsibility of citizenship, even if I did not have access to citizenship myself. DACA allowed me to work for Advancing Justice. I also worked at a couple of other nonprofits. And this whole time, I think back to the experience of how DACA fundamentally changed how I envisioned my place in the United States. I felt that I was one step closer to belonging in this country that has for so long excluded me and the people like me in important decision-making processes. You bring up some important points. I think many of us did not know <laughs> if we were just signing our lives over, right? And, and I think the fear was real of, of here's everything about me. Here's all my addresses. Here's everything I've ever done. Are you going to do good with this information? Or essentially, are you going to deport all of us? And I think that was a chance that many of us took without really knowing what, what it could bring. And obviously, we saw that for many of us, we got that little card and, and that card fundamentally transformed who we were, the place that we took in this country. So definitely was a big change. That being said, it was only a personal change, right? And so I'd love to hear if you have siblings um, or your parents, how did that feel you now having this nine digit number, but your family still living in this limbo? I found that DACA really changed my mindset. And as you mentioned, it was a personal transformation, but it also did start conversations with my family. I'm in a mixed status family, which means that I have some members of my family who are citizens and some members of my family who are undocumented. I know that after DACA was a victory for DREAMers, right? And again, I'm defining DREAMers here based on the requirements to get DACA. But after we received DACA and after much more time has passed, I know that my next priority and the priority of the people I was organizing with revolved around getting our parents the same kind of protection from deportation. I know that in 2016, we were very close to getting a DAPA, right? Deferred Action for Parents. And with DAPA, our parents would have also been able to get a social security number, which allows them to work legally, right? And to get the same benefits that we do as DACA recipients. But also the biggest thing is just safety from deportations. It's so heartbreaking to hear stories of students or children who come home to find that 
their parents have been taken away while they were at school. And I know that DACA always continues to remind me that my lack of a permanent status, DACA is not permanent, it's temporary, but my lack of a permanent status, it constantly forces me to re-examine my privilege. And that really does show up in the conversations I have with others, uh, family members, but also the community members I interact with. Yeah, and, and as you said it, DACA only covered a portion of us. Unfortunately, as we heard from Arturo, our other participant in this show, he did not get covered. And so not only did we miss a big chunk of young people like us, but obviously our parents weren't covered. It is something that continues to be at the forefront of the fight because oftentimes I think the media is very easy to forgive people like you and me because we were so young and yet they're so quick to crucify people like our parents, right? When in reality, our dreams would not be real if it wasn't for our parents. So to me, the juxtaposition of which dreams do we celebrate and which dreams do we sacrifice and do we crucify, if you will, are very forefront in in my everyday life. You know, DACA is a blessing and a curse, right? It's a blessing for the students and the youth that are able to benefit from the social security number and the protection from deportation based on an arbitrary set of requirements, but that it really does alienate the other section of the population that did not meet those requirements because they are still operating in a system that penalizes immigrants, right? That criminalizes immigrants uh, for being in this country. And I know that we have so much work to do to include everybody. And it's not just about citizenship. It's about really making sure that we are a part of a a community, a global community. I know that with the rhetoric of the election, right, and President Trump's threats of deportation, I think what I've learned also from just hearing your story, reflecting upon my story, and just looking to see where the immigrant rights movement is going to take us next, I am just steadfast in my belief that, you know, the values that our immigrant parents and our immigrant selves have really held on to that allowed us to succeed in this country, those values will will prevail in the end. So values such as fairness, right, equal opportunity, equity, access, all of those values, I hope and I really believe will prevail in the end. I really hope that you're right. And I really do hope that this next chapter is going to look different because the last couple of years have been hard for a lot of members of our community. So I'm really hoping that we are entering a new chapter. So going back to your chapters, so then you graduated. And so when did you graduate? And then how did you utilize DACA afterwards? So I graduated from undergrad in 2015. And in 2015, I made the commitment to join Teach for America. And Teach for America is a teaching and leadership organization that recruits teachers to serve in schools. And we know that there is a huge teacher shortage right now. I knew I always wanted to be a teacher, but I wasn't really sure how to do it and whether or not I could actually do it because of DACA. Teach for America was one of the organizations that really made visible the work of DACA teachers, but they also accepted DACA teachers in regions uh, that may not be friendly to immigrants, right? I did my core commitment from 2016 to 2018. And at the time, I was also going through grad school uh, for my master's degree. And I completed my master's degree at uh, Loyola Marymount University. 
Right now, I'm currently a doctoral student at USC. So I think my trajectory just shows that if you love school, <laughs> you'll continue to do school for as long as possible. But I do love research. I love scholarship. And I really hope that I'm not the only one, right? And I want to pave the way for other undocumented and DACA folks to be able to get those master's degrees and doctoral degrees if that is what they want to do. So Denise, you could have done so many different things, right? Like you could have been an activist, you could have chosen many different careers. Why did you choose education? Yes, I definitely could have done many things. And I feel like I still do those things now. (laughs) It's just a limited capacity, right? Teaching does take up my full attention during the school day. I chose teaching because I like to work on hope. I really do believe that the resistance is built on hope. And when I see kids and the potential that they have, it makes me more hopeful for the future. I also go back to my experiences being in high school and not really knowing what's out there for me as an undocumented student. And my teachers being the ones that really pushed me to get outside my comfort zone. And it was rightfully so. (laughs) Deportation is super real. And I was scared to tell anybody about my story and to share the challenges that came my way. It was the teachers that I had got me through those tough times. And I want to be that teacher for other students, regardless of immigration status. And I want to make a difference and I want to change that. And so that's really why I stayed in teaching. I think all of my decisions are really based on hope, really based on reimagining. And we cannot reimagine if we cannot focus on joy. So teaching also reminds me to not take myself too seriously. I know it's hard because there's so much at stake for us undocumented folks. But I also really love having fun and having fun with students and making learning fun. And I really do encourage if anybody is listening to this podcast and they want to consider the teaching field to come talk to your teachers and see how they did it. And we need more teachers (laughs) in this country. So please, please consider the teaching profession. I could not agree more with the statement that you just said. Obviously, I am married to a teacher, and I believe that teaching is probably one of the most important professions that we have. Then lastly, could you give any tips for our young professional DACA students that are listening? So essentially, people that graduated from college and are now working their full-time job like you with DACA, what are some tips or pieces of advice you have for them? My first tip is to really dig deep and just know that you are enough. I know that oftentimes I'll have to say that to myself. I say I am enough when I am filling out my DACA application and I have to figure out where to find that source of income to pay the fee. I tell myself I am enough when I hear about another deportation case. I tell myself I am enough when I am in spaces where I don't feel good enough. And I know that I have overcome so many challenges just to get to be where I am today. So I think the first step is just to really remind ourselves that we are enough and that we don't need to be productive to prove our worth. And I know it's hard because the legal system is built so that you have to show every two years, especially with DACA, that you have done something with your work permit. 
The rhetoric is also very much centered around our productivity, our accomplishments. And so my first step is to remind yourself that you're enough. And when that gets too hard, really lean on the people that love you and support you to remind you of that. My second tip for our growing professionals is to own your story. It's taken me a long time to share mine. And again, I'm so grateful to you, Norma, and to this podcast for taking the time to hear the undocumented first-gen student experience. But I know that telling our stories, it's a lot. There's trauma that we need to unpack. There's also a lot of resilience. And I don't want us to get caught up in the trauma, right? And the victimization that we've experienced. I want us to really think critically about the systems that have caused this victimization. And so I think uh, the first step to that is owning our stories and sharing our stories, not for the sake of what you want other people to hear, but uh, telling our stories as a pathway to healing. I know that in the hustle and bustle of the professional life, it could be very difficult to navigate. And one of the things that I was also going to mention is that when I started teaching, I wasn't really sure if I should share my story with my students and with my staff. It took me a year to really get comfortable sharing my story to my principal. And I am really, again, uh, you know, I am really fortunate that I have her support. And that support and the relationship we have now wouldn't have happened if I didn't share my story and I didn't take ownership of my story. So those are my two tips. And I hope that those two tips really resonate. I do have more, but I think if you start off with these two things and you get your mind and your heart aligned with one another and you focus on healing, that everything else will come easy. Those are very good tips, Denise, and I I really like both of them. And oftentimes in my own career, I've had to write things like that on sticky notes just to remind myself, I got this. I know I can do this. I know it's hard, but I can do hard things and I am enough. So I really appreciate that one. And then the second one, I I think it's very real. And I think that oftentimes in our community, we are scared that we need to speak to therapists, we need professional help, when in reality, it's a good thing. And you know, if we need it, we definitely should seek it. Because you're right, we have lived some crazy things in our lives that have built anxiety and fear. And yet we have to look at them in the face and we have to heal exactly as you just said and and we have to move on and and we have to love ourselves and love our families I would love to thank you so so much for being on our podcast today and sharing your story thank you so much for having me As we heard from our various episodes, being the first one in your family to embark on this college-going journey is extremely difficult. Being the first one and being undocumented adds a whole nother layer of complexity as we heard today from Arturo and Denise. As we were recording this episode, we actually got word that DACA got reinstituted. This is a huge win for our community, as we all know that the DACA program had been under continuous scrutiny from the Trump administration. Approximately 
approximately 1.3 million undocumented youth will now be able to apply to DACA once again. This is a huge win for our community, but the war is not over. We continue to fight and advocate for people like Arturo that we heard today in the show, who still does not qualify for DACA, and people like my mom and other people's parents. We thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope that all of you stay hopeful and that you continue to join us in this fight for fairness, advocacy, and justice. Until next time. <laughs>